Hello and welcome to Cocktails, Mocktails, and Crime. We're your hosts, Jill. Dave. Greg. And Steve. Gracia and Dad are not here today, which is their problem. So um, that means that we were in charge of the drink of the week again. So that means Craig is going to talk about his birthday scotch. Yeah, so Grisha is the driving force behind the selection of cocktails. So we didn't pick a cocktail this week. We picked as our cocktail Balvenie Scotch, um, which is pretty tasty. I've actually one time put this up against Johnny Walker Blue Label in a taste test, and three out of four of us actually declined to choose the Blue Label and took the Balvenie instead. So mm. that either means Blue Label's not as good as its price or... Balvenie's just great for its price. I think I remember not liking Blue Label at all, although I don't like scotch personally. But even the boys, I think, didn't like it. Yeah, so there you have it, slamming Johnny Walker. But the Balvenie is pretty tasty. I just can't get anybody else to drink it with me. Yeah, because it's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> if I didn't have a cold, I'd be able to smell it from here. I'm sure it's gross. <laughs> anyway, um, were you going to say something, Steve? I was just going to say pork curry. Let's not. <laughs> yeah, sympathy for Craig. That is often in it's order. It's like sympathy for the devil, man. Just don't go there. Uh, all right. But Dave is bringing us the story of a week. I know last week uh, we talked about having a special guest on to talk about the uh, laundry petito case. But um, he had to reschedule. So we'll be doing that next week. So this week, Dave is bringing us a different story. This story is the revenge of nobody. Poverty is a plague. Its victims are countless, but nobody bothers to count them anyways. They're seen by the mass of us and by people and by themselves as just nobodies. The name Leon Chalgos is one that very few Americans know or can even pronounce. According to the internet, it should be pronounced Chalgos. After being blacklisted by his employer, though, he went by an alias, Frank Nyman. Nyman, the surname of his own choosing, in English, would mean nobody. Frank Leon Chalgas was, was the son of a Polish immigrant. He was born in Michigan. There's some debate about specifically where in Michigan, but it was definitely in Michigan. His father had briefly tried to operate a saloon, which exposed Leon at a very young age to kind of prostitutes, outlaws, people like that. We're talking the 1800s here. Um, his father, his family also had to move around a lot when he was a child. Uh, Leon didn't fit in very well in school. Um, there are stories about him often being bullied. There's also a very common consensus that Leon was socially awkward, meaning that he had a lot of difficulty understanding boundaries and picking up on social cues. Um, we're going to find later in the story that that kind of becomes pretty apparent and creates some problems for him. Um, Leon's father, being an immigrant, being not educated in America at all, um, often struggled financially and had trouble keeping stable employment. Uh, when Leon was 16, his mother died. From Leon's birth, we know the year was definitely 1873. It's not confirmed that it was May 5th. Um, but it's believed to be there is no birth certificate for Leon. That's why, <clears throat> excuse me, that's why we're not 100% certain what city he was born in or the exact date of his birth. Um, until his death, though, 
America would suffer many what we refer to now historically as panics. Now, panics are really synonymous with depressions, basically. Working class people, uh, like Leon Chagas and his father, took the brunt of the downturns. Um, and Leon, like his father, would struggle to find work, and when he did, the jobs wouldn't last long. His mid to late teen years, or when Leon starts his employment, he will begin working at a glass factory in Natrona, Pennsylvania. Uh, but due to wage cuts, he was fired. He found work, though, shortly thereafter at the Cleveland Rolling Mill Company. While he was working there, the economic crash of 1893 would happen, and this was a pretty strong economic crash. The company would then try to reduce wages. This led to a worker strike, which Leon participated in. Uh, for participating in the worker strike, not only was Leon not allowed to work back at this company, he was also blacklisted. And when employers found um, people striking back in those days, they'd talk to other employers and you wouldn't be able to get a job anywhere. Um, and so Leon just changed his name. And he actually applied for and got a job at the same company at one point under the name Frank Neiman. <laughs> so now Neiman, as I mentioned earlier, meant nobody. And it's kind of good insight into what goes on in Leon's brain. At this point of his life, Leon is feeling very out of place in the, in the world. Um, his employment hardships are causing him a lot of depression, anxiety, on top of that, his lack of social skills really create challenges. He has no friends really at all, um, and he had been raised Catholic, so he decides maybe I'll start going to church. He goes back to churches, the Catholic churches, briefly, but what happens is that Leon is seeing, you know, you've been to Catholic churches, I'm sure, and you've seen how elegant and beautiful they are. Here, these people in these huge cathedrals are passing around offering plates to people who can't even afford to eat. So Leon not only kind of denounces his faith, he develops quite an animosity towards the Catholic Church. This leads Leon to start dabbling in political groups. And he joins first a group called the Knights of the Golden Eagle. This group is a socialist group that started in Baltimore in the 1870s. However, they required men to be people of faith, and Leon, of course, no longer attending church. This doesn't sit well with him. So Leon ends up joining a more radical movement, which was referred to as the Sela Club. The Sela Club was described by themselves as being a socialist movement, though they really had a strong lean towards the anarchist movements that were growing in Europe. Um, and they were a lot more violent, and um, they don't last long because a lot of their members end up getting arrested. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> but shortly thereafter, Leon would develop his first man crush. Hmm. Um, the target of his affection was a man named Gatano Bresci. He was an Italian anarchist who assassinated C King Umberto of Italy. Bresco said the killing was his duty to the common man. Leon becomes obsessed with Bresky. He finds anything he can find on him, whether it's a newspaper clipping, a picture. He's basically collecting all sorts of Bresky memorabilia 
and he is just really infatuated with Bresky. Um, but despite his newfound love of assassins and his membership in the Sela group, he is suffering from severe depression. Um, the joining of these groups, as radical as these groups are, they don't really seem to provide him any friends. Uh, you know, he's just such a socially awkward and short-tempered person that he can't socialize with anybody. Mm -hmm. um, in 1900, it is believed, although somewhat debated, that Leon will have a total nervous breakdown. And that's what precipitated him to move back to his father's home. Um, again, this is argued, this was brought up in his trial, but it's not clear as to whether or not it's actually true. But he definitely does move back in with his father, and he becomes a social recluse. Um, he is not going outside at all. Um, what did they call that? Agoraphobia? That is, it is very common to see agoraphobics do that, yeah. yeah. And um, he is definitely a person that could have had agoraphobia, amongst other things. Um, you know, his social awkwardness. I mean, you could even think of him as possibly being in the spectrum just slightly. Yeah, I was kind of wondering that when you were talking earlier about him being socially awkward. I wondered yeah. if he was like some kind of Asperger's or somewhere on the spectrum. It's, it's definitely possible. I mean, there are a lot of people that, you know, are still alive, you know, in our generation that were never diagnosed when they were younger because they really only started learning about Asperger's when, you know, 1990s, yeah. you know. So, I mean, there's a lot of people that have it. And, you know, Leon is definitely somebody who, you know, you get the impression like he's going to ask you questions that, you know, he's just met you and maybe you think they're too personal and you kind of give him some sort of cue, but he can't even pick up on those cues. Right. So he does not stop. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, I've met a few people like that and it definitely feels like they're on the spectrum somehow. Yeah. Was he like intelligent or do you know anything he, about that? He, so he struggled in school, but he was very well read. My guess is his IQ was probably around average, maybe slightly above or slightly below. I don't think he was, um, I don't think he had low IQ um, at all, um, but I don't think he was a genius level either. Yeah. So. Um, at this point, his father lives in Warrensville, Ohio, and he has remarried a woman, and she is a very devout Catholic. So this puts Leon and her frequently at odds. Um, Leon loves assassins. He loves to talk about that, and he hates the church. So they're not getting along well. Um, this leads Leon, though, to become even more socially reclusive, and it's said that he, he'll go through a part of his um, period here in very early 1900, 1901 of, you know, almost basically living in like a little room and not ever going outside of it, um, you know, barely even to eat. And he just spends his time reading mostly anarchist literature. Um, when he does deal with his parents, he argues with them often about religion and politics. Um, at this point, Leon's come to believe that the economic injustices of society, they need to be ended. But he also believes that democracy by design creates it. 
And Leon believes that the only way now to end economic injustice is to end democracy. Um, That's interesting. <clears throat> yeah. And this was kind of a common theme of a lot of the anarchists. Um, you know, and what their basic thesis was, and there's truth to it, is that you know, you elect these members of Congress, and in a democracy, you have to be able to get your message out to a wide array of people, so you need money to do that. So what it basically ends up being is that people with money contribute to your campaigns, and you're pretty much beholden to them. That's still how it is. That really is still <laughs> how it is. So, um, you know, his his view of that was basically, you know, I mean... Not necessarily untrue, <laughs> certainly, but... Um, so what was the anarchist game plan then? You figure that democracy leads to great economic inequity, and then if there's anarchy, what do you replace that with? So I don't... I, I think the anarchists were more... I don't know that... Try not to insult them, but oh, they, no. were, they were more... Um, Why are we worried about that now? True, but they are worried... Well, they still are anarchists, so... I just meant um, we insult so many people. That's so. true. But, you know, I, I mean, very similar in a lot of ways to, like, communism and, like, gulag level and dictating. Like, we've talked a lot about far-right dictatorships and on this podcast. There are certainly plenty of far-left dictatorships as well. Um, and they generally use military force and, you know, the same kind of thing. Yeah. You know, um, the gulag prison system, of course, being very famous in Russia, if you in any way challenge the communists, they'll just put you in these horrible prisons. So... <clears throat> or kill you like Stalin, you know. He liked to kill people randomly. So, mm -hmm. but we all need a hobby, right? <laughs> so, <clears throat> I'm not going to take up killing. Okay. I might. <laughs> <laughs> we know. <laughs> so perhaps his disdain for his mother in law, or maybe just boredom. Um, early in 1901, though, Leon will start venturing out of his house again and into the world. And he's going to start going to anarchist groups, and he's going to watch speeches from, primarily from socialists and anarchists. Leon had felt, though, that the groups in the area were nowhere near radical enough. He didn't believe they were committed. They weren't violent. They weren't willing to be violent. So he really questioned their you know, integrity. Um, <laughs> He'd have an easy time nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> so, but he does find one person. Her name was Emma Goldman. Now, Emma Goldman was a very radical uh, anarchist, originally from Connus, which is now modern-day Lithuania. Emma had become interested in the anarchist movements after the Haymarket Affair. And if you're not familiar with that, that's a famous bombing that took place on May 4th, 1886. Um, basically, the Chicago police um, had been um, trying to control a labor strike, and there was a labor protest, rather, about working hours. And the police were basically trying to get things under control, and somebody threw a bomb at the police, and Jesus. then the police started shooting people randomly. So that's referred to as the Haymarket Affair. Um, this 
sounded like great things for Emma Goldman, though. This really inspired her. Um, so she's radical, and after seeing her speak, um, Chalgas is pretty much as obsessed with Goldman as he was with Bresky. And he is able to approach her after she'd given a lecture in Cleveland and asked her for reading recommendations. Then he starts appearing at her house. And he'll <laughs> That's ask creepy. her. Yeah. He just kind of comes uninvited, finds out where she lives, and he asks, starts asking her about her associates. And this is where we get into his social awkwardness. Um, he, he would just kind of dug and dug and dug. Um, about who she affiliated with, who her connections were, and he kind of keeps reiterating how he's so disappointed in the groups in the area because they're not really willing to take the cause to the next level. And, of course, um, when she sees him doing that and the people around her see him doing that, they immediately suspect he's a spy. So... okay. They put in the paper, um, on one of the socialist papers called uh, The Free Society, attention, this is called the attention to comrades of another spy. He is well-dressed, of medium height, rather narrow shoulders, blonde, and about 25 years of age. Up to the present, he's made his appearances in Chicago and in Cleveland. In the former place, he remained only but a short time. But while in Cleveland, he disappeared when the comrades had confirmed themselves of his identity and were on the point of exposing him. His demeanor is of the unusual sort, pretending to be greatly interested in the cause and then asking for names or soliciting for acts of contemplated violence. If the same individual makes his appearance elsewhere, the comrades are warned in advance and should act accordingly. So... um, There are also rumors that would circulate, especially after the arrest of Zongos, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, that he had not just an interest in Goldman as, you know, an anarchist companion, but as a romantic partner. That's not, it's not clear as to whether or not that's true or not, um, but it's certainly possible. I mean, he's really, throughout his life, found very few women that would have this long of a conversation with him. So, I mean, <laughs> so you know. So, therefore, she must be into him. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, he's he, he's not Casanova. I am, no. And, you know, she's one of the few people he's met now that she's as crazy as he is. I mean, she's as violent as he is, at least. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's definitely, you know, interested in her. Um, and I think the rejection that, because he would have seen that Free Society newspaper, he was reading them all, and I think he would have made the connection that they were referring to him. And I think this rejection is what finally pushes him over the edge. Um, he had spent the better part of his life feeling like his ne- life was never going to be anything but a large struggle in poverty, that he would never have friends or lovers, and that basically his life was always going to be unbearable. And now in 1901, when he finally thinks he might have a group in which he has a place to belong, they've rejected him. Um, in May of 1901 as well, his hero Bresky dies in jail. Some reports do indicate that Bresky had committed suicide um, by hanging himself, but most people 
especially people in the anarchist circles, were quite convinced he was murdered. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, this seems to be what has pushed him over the edge. And in August 1901, Shaw Goss hears that President McKinley will be appearing and speaking at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. Chalgas immediately reserves a room. The second day of September, he walks into a hardware store and buys a 32 caliber Ivor Johnson revolver, which is a small gun that's easy to conceal. The afternoon of September 6, 1901, Mc McKinley is basically holding a receiving line at the Temple of Music. So Leon gets in line, and he has what appears to be a bandage on his right hand. Um, but as he reaches the front of the line, President McKinley kind of greets him with the politician's smile, kind of reaching out his hand to shake hands with him. Leon immediately removes the fake bandage and exposes the revolver, smacks McKinley's hand away, and fires a shot. The first shot... Um, actually ricocheted off of McKinley's suit coat button, of all the odds. Um, Shawgoss, though, fired again, and that time he hit McKinley in the abdomen. McKinley sunk back. The only words that could be made out that he said were as go easy on him, folks, as people um, basically tackled Shawgoss and started beating him. Um, it's generally believed that if not for McKinley telling people not to, the crowd would have likely beaten them to death. Wow. Um, McKinley's injuries were not immediately fatal. However, several days after the infection um, would eventually take his life. That would lead, of course, to his vice president, Theodore Roosevelt, and he would become both then and in modern times one of America's most loved presidents. It's also important to note that McKinley was a pretty well-liked president at this yeah. point. So Chalgloss is going to stand trial, and, um, you know, for lack of anyone better to make a comparison to, it would have been like being Bin Laden's defense attorney at this point. People just hate Chalgloss. They don't see any point in even having a trial, so no lawyer wants to defend him. Um but eventually, a judge basically orders um, Lauren Lewis and Robert Titus, who are two public defenders, that you guys got to defend Leon Chalgos. And they do. <clears throat> Leon would originally cl claim he was part of a larger conspiracy of anarchists. This was actually ruled out, though, by law enforcement. Um, but he made references, of course, to Emma Goldman, who law enforcement really wanted um, basically to arrest and you know, do away with. So they detained her for several weeks, um, but were not able to find any type of connection uh, between her and the assassination. And they eventually have to let her go. Um, so, and this is one of the interesting things, is when you think about most presidential election uh, assassinations, rather, there'll be conspiracy theories around them. Um, and with this one, you know, the actual assassins, like, well, I did it, but I'm part of a bigger thing. Um, and, but even the general public kind of dismissed that. Um, so, uh, Leon certainly did work alone. Um, there's no evidence of anything larger. I think one of the reasons he may have brought up being part of something larger 
was that he may have really did have a romantic um, interest in Emma and wanted to impress her. You know, oh, kind of like I'm I'm part of this big thing. That's why that know? guy shot Reagan, right? Was to impress Jodie Foster. Yep. Jokes so. on him. She's a lesbian. <laughs> 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 so the trial of Leon Chagas will take place within a week of the death of McKinley. And the defense would basically try and talk to Chagas. He wouldn't even talk to his own defense team. He's like, you know, go fuck yourselves. You know, it's like, I'm proud of what I did. I'm not, I don't need a defense. I'm ready to die. And he was. So they basically argued that he was mentally ill. And they presented any evidence that they could find to support that. And while, you know, there's certainly truth to the fact that you know, he was nuts, um, you know, and they made the point that, you know, nobody would actually walk out in front of a crowd of people and shoot the president unless they were insane, um, which is a valid point. But this does not make the McNaughton standard anyways, um, which basically means you have to pretty much not know what you're doing is wrong. Um, so within 30 hours of the start of the trial, Leon is convicted and sentenced to die by electrocution. Fast one. Yeah. So, um, Chalgos will make no appeals. On the 29th of October, less than two months of the shooting of President McKinley, uh, and really the only reason it took them this long is that in New York they had a law that said you have to wait 30 days from the date somebody's convicted to actually execute them. Just in case there's an appeal or yeah. something. Yeah, so... So October 29th, uh, 1901, uh, Leon Chalgos is um, put to death. His last words were, I've killed the president because he was the enemy of good people, the good working people, and I am not sorry for my crime. So, oh, Well, there you go. <laughs> Be proud of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> he was buried in Seoul Cemetery in Senate, New York. Now... This is part of where the there's a prison there. And so they were supposed to be burying inmates like legitimately, maybe not necessarily marked graves or anything, but they weren't even doing that. They had like a ditch that they were just throwing bodies into oh, when gosh. inmates died in this prison. Um, so he's basically just one of many big piles of bones that lays underneath the ground in the cemetery. Um, but this was, I mean, Leon was a nobody, and he that was his point. I am nobody. And while I cannot justify the actions of a person like that, I actually feel a lot of empathy for him. He was, like many, just a discarded man who dreamed of being a nobody. And we may mock that as a simple ambition, but for the working poor, for a person who's the son of immigrants, it's actually a strong stretch. For many of us, we're given at least that goal. We can work, raise families, and like John Cougar Mellencamp said, there are little pink houses for you and me. We live in our 1 in 330 million lives in the U.S. with our little pink houses, our beautiful children, their piano recitals, our holiday get-togethers, that which... Remind us that while it may be a small circle around us, we have a circle of love. We have a life of simple pleasures and dignities. 
But for many who are working poor or immigrants, there are no little pink houses. There is no respect. There is no dignity. Your dream of being nobody is simply out of reach. And what do we really expect as a society if we constantly discard people? Yeah, I agree with you. I was like I told you when um I read the narrative, I was really I like the position that you took cuz I think we talk about the cycle of poverty a lot and mm-hmm. we don't we do anyway us <clears throat> four. Um but we as a society, I don't think we do and I don't think people recognize what we're when we're minimalizing people even accidentally because they don't shop at the right stores or they don't you know and when you have a person uh, you know and and even nowadays i mean we we have to i mean we know more about you know the autistic spectrum which we're talking about you know when you meet up with somebody that has um social awkwardness sometimes you really have to remind yourself you know this person can't help it you know, they don't realize that they're crossing boundaries. And you have to be very gentle with them and not rejecting to them. Um, because just like everybody else, I mean, they have feelings and they're, you know, they're just, we're all trying to go through the whole thing called life. And we're doing our best. And I think you have to remember that about people, whether they're poor, whether or not they're, socially bizarre or different that you know they're doing the best with the resources that they have yeah so yeah i think that's exactly right and i think um yeah i mean i think the point is totally valid i don't know how to fix it because it feels like particularly with social media um Mm -hmm. it feels like we now live in a society of mean girls for lack of a better term you know and I always feel bad. Um, and I think actually I've grown a lot from social media because you'll see people post, you know, photos of people of Walmart, you know, like bigger people wearing, you know, crazy outfits. Yeah, I really stuff. take exception to those pictures of me. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of has made has made me change from somebody who may have looked at that 10 or 15 years ago and thought it was funny to somebody who thinks maybe that person like walked out their door and that was all they could afford or maybe they walked out their door and felt great about how they looked that day or you know what I mean and like who am I to to belittle that or to whatever so I've tried to find a lot of growth out of this but I definitely think um we were talking last week with dad Steve and I were um about food insecurity and what it means because as a cheerleading coach in the town that I coach cheerleading and I have quite a few girls that I need to feed um before they compete because they have food insecurity so it's not that it's not that their parents don't work they do work like I've got a a couple girls on the team their mom's a single mom she's working as hard as she can but if you ask the girls what they had for breakfast it's a uh Rice Krispies treat bar because you can buy them in a big pack for sure. like two dollars and fifty cents at Walmart. So there's no protein in that. There's no health food in that, you know. And we're constantly having to feed them. And so when Steve and I were talking to Dad about it last week, Dad was saying he didn't even know he grew up with food insecurity. But then he was telling us about was it saltines and milk mm-hmm. with sugar on it. Sure. That's what he was given for breakfast. Yeah. You know? Stealing oranges off of trees because he was hungry, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but for, you know, a lot of people that are in that life, they don't even realize, you know, that this isn't And that's what um, dad was saying. Yeah. yeah. He had yeah. no idea that that wasn't like what everybody else. Yeah. Ate, you know. And I mean, we're 
lucky, um, you and I, that dad was able to come out of that poverty. But, you know, his sisters Mm -hmm. aren't, you know, like. Or if you like, um, I think it was Axl Rose who wrote about, you know, being abused as a child and really thinking that everybody goes through this. Yeah. You know, this is just how every father is. You know, I think it was Axel. I might be mistaken. Yeah. There, but uh, Lincoln Park um, wrote a lot about it, too. But yeah. certainly Axel roasted, too. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know. So I don't know. I feel like if we all were a little bit more kind. More kind. And if there was a minimum standard of living that, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, when we talk about everything at the top, it's it, the problem is the bottom is too low. You know, it's not even so much whether the top is too high or not, is the bottom is just too low. I mean, how do people make it? You know, how do you live off of 15, they're talking about making minimum wage $15 an hour. How would you live off of $15 an hour? You really can't. I mean, you know, three of your paychecks are going to go to your $1,200 a month rent. Yeah, I know. That outrages me, especially with the people who, like right now there's an employment shortage, right? Mm -hmm. Because people learned during COVID collecting unemployment that they basically make the same thing with or without that $300 bonus, right? To not work. So why work? You Mm -hmm. know, like, Mm -hmm. and people are angry at those, at those people, but I don't understand why. Like, why aren't you angry at? That always, that always uh, gets to me when they're angry at not the rich people or the people in power, but the other yeah, yeah, like, like they'll say stuff like, oh, they want $15 an hour to flip a burger. Like, Mm -hmm. Well, why aren't you pissed at the Jeff Bezos in the world and whoever's right. the guy who owns McDonald's? Like, for the he, record, I need about a hundred dollars an hour to flip well, a burger. Tear. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, the thing is, is that you know, your time when when people look at things like that and they are they're looking at like you know what these people make and they're saying, well, if they bring it up, then we're gonna have to pay more for our cheeseburgers. It's like, first of all, not really. Because if you look state by state and you look at the prices of McDonald's food, because minimum wage differs from one state to the other. In fact, minimum wage in New Hampshire is still, I believe, $7 an hour. In Massachusetts, it's like 12. But look at the price of cheeseburgers or whatever they serve at McDonald's. It's the same exact thing. Right. You know, because they're still making, they're making so much profit, you know, that this, you know, extra dollar or two an hour, you know, 10 bucks an hour is n- really nothing. Right. You know, and. The scheme. And the other thing is like for, so I was talking to a girl who works for me today, one of my cheer coaches, and um, she was telling me she's trying to find an apartment and she's 20 um, mm-hmm. and she works at a daycare during the day. Uh, she takes care of infants and then she coaches for me at my gym like three days a week or something and on Saturdays. So she works two jobs. She's not like underworked. She's not lazy by any stretch of the imagination. She can't find an apartment for herself because most uh, one bedroom apartments are like $1,200 a month. Yeah. But she was telling me that her and her cousin found like a three bedroom. So those three co- these three girls were going to get this apartment together. But they have to be able to show that they make three times the rent, each one of them. And they have to come up with first, last, and security equal to the rent. So they had to come up with basically Mm $4,000, which they don't have because they're 20. Now, they do have a couple thousand dollars between them, and they do make enough to cover the rent, but they don't make three times. And Bella was saying, if I make three times the rent of this place, I would buy a house. You know, Mm -hmm. like, why would I try to rent this apartment, you know? And it just seems like what they're going through right now, and it's... 
you know, mm. she's never going to get out of living with her parents or mm. living in this one room that she rents because it's ridiculous. You know, yeah, it's not it set up. It, it's, you know? it's absurd. Reminds me of a discussion we had at Happy Hour Friday where there were um, people at work were talking about Lawrence um, and how bad of a situation that city is in, and it's like um, everything's falling apart and and. Uh, but still, they're they're telling me that like the cost of living is not low; it's very high. Um, and they were talking about the rent is like two thousand dollars, you know, just yeah. to rent. And mm-hmm. there's like sixty nine percent of the area is is um, apartments rather than single family and all that. And it's like, well, how do they afford that when everyone's so poor there? And they don't. They can't. I yeah. mean, that's the thing. I mean. They're, they're, you afford it by not eating. You afford it by, you know, uh, I mean, not making basic necessities, which is why there needs to be a minimum standard yeah, of living. That's, like, that's what you do. You make trade-offs. Yeah, you know, like, so. do we buy heat or do we pay the rent? Do we put food on the table or do we pay the rent? You uh, know. By the way, Andrew Yang for president. Universal basic income. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Thanks, Greg. <laughs> but yeah, that's how you do it. And so, and this cycle of poverty is really dangerous because it creates people like this. It sure. creates people like Hitler, too. We talked yes, about that does. last time. Yeah. This is how Hitler came into power. Mm-hmm. You know, it creates the Malcolm X's, you know, these kind of militant, violent, you know, people because they don't see another way out. They don't see another way out. And there's nothing but anger in their lives. Yeah. So I'd I mean, be pissed off, yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, I. I mean, the thing about Leon Chagas is, you know, he's perfectly willing to work hard. You know, he's he'll work. If you give him a pay and you gave him, you know, the pay that would provide him with even basic necessities, we would never have even talked about, you know, the yeah. killing of McKinley. And, you know, the thing is, is that I've always found this interesting. Here's a person that has killed an American president. That I could guarantee you, if you walked into like Walmart and said, "Who shot McKinley?" Almost nobody could even tell you, or any mall, you know. I bet they can't tell you who McKinley is. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> but <clears throat> you know, we, we, but we know who Oswald was, right? And we know who we John Wilkes Booth was. McKinley was a popular president too, and I've always felt like there's, like. In part, they don't want to focus on this because they don't want people looking at seeing Zong- Chagas and saying, well, you know, actually he had a couple points. Yeah, maybe he had something <laughs> to say. Well, yeah, because when um, it's like in school, they do control what we learn, obviously. Mm-hmm. And you do learn about the Industrial Revolution, which is what was going on at this time, and then World War One. But you don't really learn about the presidents or who was assassinated or why or anything like that. Like, that's not part of the story. And they minimize the economic panics. In fact, they changed the name from depression to panics yeah. at one point. Yeah. Because they used to tell them, call even in the 1800s, they said it was a depression. Yeah. But they started calling them panics, which is <laughs> the same thing. Yeah, but it makes so. it sound like it's on our end and not yeah. you know, Wall Street's end. It's like it's, and it's, of course, the people on the red the, who are wealthy, they, they do just fine in those panics. They get through them just fine. It's the people on the bottom that really get screwed, you know, because now they don't have any work. Yeah, it's sort of like with the recent uh, pandemic uh, in 2020, like, you know, the stock market fell dramatically, but a lot of people still made money. 
Sure. Yeah. yeah. Wealthy people made a fortune off of the pandemic. I mean, it's it's insane. It's like if you're rich, well, you know, when they had the 2008 um, crash there, you know, there was a, I think, one CEO, and I can't remember which bank it was. It was one of the ones that was complaining that if you took some of the bailout um you couldn't give your bonuses out to your CEOs um, until you paid the money back. Um, and the year prior, they had given this man a bonus of like $60 million. The bank went belly up. Yeah. I mean, imagine what his bonus would have been like had he done a good job. I know, yeah. <laughs> I know. But that's actually, if you took like, and you combined the entire payroll department of most school systems in several states, it's more than that. Yeah. It's more than all teachers would make combined in a state like Maine. You know, it's like $60 million is a lot of money. It's disgusting. So. And there's no need for it. No. And they mm-hmm. just give themselves. When I worked at Polaroid, it was right as they filed bankruptcy. And a lot of those CEOs, they just gave themselves bonuses. They filed bankruptcy. And a lot of the people that had been working there and had worked there for decades were supposed to get a pension. But that money was gone because they went bankrupt, so they no longer had to pay that back. Yeah. But they all gave themselves bonuses before <laughs> before they bankrupted the company. So disgusting. You all sound like you're going to be looking around for communist organizations. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. maybe someday. <laughs> if they're nice. <laughs> anyway, that was an interesting quick little story. Yeah. Yeah. And just to be clear, though, I kind of thought that the doctors basically killed McKinley, but uh, no, that was Garfield. Yeah, I was gonna say. Uh, Didn't we learn about that with Lincoln too? Wasn't it? Which one was was Garfield? Garfield The rusty bed. Yeah, they had him on a rusty bed, and they were using a metal detector (laughs) to find the bullet. (laughs) And so the metal detector keeps going off. They keep taking a scalpel sticking it into him and then they were dropping the scalpel on the floor and then they were picking it up and <laughs> hard to it hold right on to it's slippery to him but um yeah this was right around the time where there was um medical research suggesting that you know um germs were actually a bad thing these microscopic organisms but there were a lot of doctors who didn't believe in it so um and the doctor that he had was a civil war doctor who like many of the Civil War doctors, they believed if there was not enough blood on their clothes, they weren't working hard enough. Mm. So they'd actually make themselves even bloodier oh. while they were dealing with Civil War um, injuries. So, yep. <laughs> that sounds nice. It's funny how history like, rears its head again. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the funny thing about Garfield, well, it's funny, haha, but kind of funny. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> um, is that. It is very possible that the bullet didn't actually even penetrate him, <laughs> that it just actually scraped him and caused some laceration. Um, yeah, they, that's they actually believed um, because Guiteau, which is the man who shot um, Garfield, he was certifiably insane. Um, but he was tackled right as he was trying to shoot Garfield. So he, the bullet kind of hits Garfield somewhere in the abdominal area, but it wasn't clear that it actually penetrated him. And, but they bring him in and they, you know, the doctor who had been drinking too, you know, he starts <laughs> going looking for the bullet. Well, 
you know. <laughs> yeah, they probably stabbed him to death. Yeah. Yeah. The, well, they the, actually it was far worse. They gave him um, a bacterial infection that <laughs> took quite a while to kill him, but it was a horrible death. Mm. So. I shouldn't laugh, but it's funny. We shouldn't, but it, it is kind of funny. So it's like, you yeah. know, I mean, it's like the people trying to take ivermedicin. <laughs> <laughs> Stay away from my boy Rogan. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so next week we'll be bringing you the Landry Petito story yep. with Dave and special guest Lou. Lou Gendron. Yep. And I think that's all for now. All right. Peace out. Bye. Thank you for listening to us on this episode of Cocktails, Mocktails, and Crime. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite app so you don't miss an episode. You can also send us an email to cocktailsmocktailsandcrime at gmail.com. Or follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Cocktails, Mocktails, and Crime. Or Twitter at CMCrime1. See you all next week. <laughs>